Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And unfortunately I have to leave it there because it's come up to four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. Today... The extradition hearing in London for Julian Lassange. I'll be speaking with Jacob Greck. Extension of the Tyndall RAAF base in Northern Territory with Stephen Darley. He's from Independent Peaceful Australia Network. Coup in Malaysia with Lee Tan. News from Western Sahara with Kate Lewis. And the life of an activist in the US. Ed Kinane. But first, Mr Kevin Healy, and I'm sure he's had another one of those weeks. A week, Jane, listener, when the sports rort, so-called sports rort business, just won't go away, despite given Scuttlebeam's totally neutral department head said there was nothing wrong. The Auditor-General has no idea what he's talking about, and anyway, even if there was something wrong, which there isn't, Scuttlebeam knew nothing about that which wasn't wrong and had no influence whatever on the fact that the money just happened to go to, well... We know all that because Scuttlebeam's Scuttlebeam only sent 136 emails to the minister who did nothing wrong in the lead up to the election, presumably congratulating her on doing nothing wrong. 136 times. Yet the bloody socialists would have us believe the 136 emails might just indicate Scuttlebeam did have his hand in the in the rorts which Scuttlebeam's neutral department head has proven were not rorts. And as for that Tasmanian former train killer Jackie Lumpen, well, you'll recall or not recall, most likely the latter, that a couple of weeks ago we handed the Principled Position Award of the Week to Rex Pat Prick of the Nick, um, Nick Xenophony lot over the Smash the Evil Unions and Evil Union Bosses Integrity Bill for his integrity in saying he won't vote for it if any of the ultra, ultra expensive train killer submarine trillions goes to Western Troublawazi, but if all the money goes to South Troublawazi, he's home base that he will vote for it. Real principle, real integrity. Don't consider the bill on its merits, or we might suggest lack of merit, and this week making a strong bid for the award, Jackie Lumpen. Also displaying her concern for the integrity of the, of the integrity bill by declaring she won't vote for it if Scuttle then doesn't come clean on his role in the rorts, which isn't a rort. Goodness me, Jackie, there's nothing to come clean about. Scuttle then's totally new to a department head has proven beyond all reasonable and if the government doesn't support her move for doing something about why so many trained killers kill themselves rather than those they're supposed to kill, those they're trained to kill, paid to kill but if it does support then she too will vote for it support trained killers and I'll support killing the evil unions oh and there's one evil union boss Lumpen doesn't like so it's a matter of principle, of integrity to smash the entire evil union movement over one person she doesn't like. And she's in good company because Lord Rupert of Wapping doesn't like him either. Imagine the trouble they'd be in if we could introduce a smash the parliament integrity bill given the huge numbers we don't like. 
Anyway, good to see Rex and Jackie bartering their votes as a matter of integrity. Given what's in the bill doesn't matter to them, presume they'll write a speech opposing it if the government doesn't do their deal, and a speech supporting it if the government does do a deal. Clearly the smash the evil unions and evil union bosses integrity bill is essential for social order, meaning the welter of legislation making it a crime for an evil union boss to be an evil union boss and an evil union to be an evil union hasn't stemmed the crime plague that so upsets the integrity, the respect for the law of caring employers and their puppets, or, sorry, sorry, and the government. Not that I'm doubting them, after all, they're such good corporate citizens, such respectable pillars of, that we don't need a good caring employer's integrity bill, do we? The government has also drawn up an anti-corruption authority without the corruption bit integrity bill, unless the corruption is by someone the government doesn't like, like the evil union boss Jackie, Jackie and Lord Rupert don't like, although he's already covered by the smash the evil unions integrity bill anyway. The Attorney General, Crush Them Porter, says the new integrity bill wouldn't look at the sports rort, which isn't a rort, because no crime has been committed. So apparently, the mooted bill, bill can't legislate to see if a crime has been committed until it has been proven a crime has been committed. Thus, obviously, all possible referrals must be investigated by the totally neutral head of Scuttlebem's department. Uh, so what can they investigate, crush them? Well, an obvious example is the way the, the Socialist Party keeps carrying on about the sports non-rort. It's criminal. Mmm, it's definitely got teeth. U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, big supremo Donald Trample the Paw, the commander-in-chief, yet again displayed the innate humility which is his nature. He, he did say, incidentally, that he is the top legal official in the country, which shows how much he knows about his job, because he isn't. But then he knows in his modest, way, modest little way that it doesn't matter if it's not the truth. It's not true. In fact, there'd be universal surprise if he said something that was true. But humility. Heading for India, he said the reception for him at some huge stadium would be huge. Huge. It could be the biggest event in India ever. <laughs> no, no, no embellishment there. He actually said that. What a modest, narcissistic megalomaniac showing he knows, knows as much about centuries of Indian history as he knows about the legal structure of his own country, of which he's so proud, knowing they can boast the greatest commander-in-chief ever, ever. But he can't believe these treacherous US of citizens gave the Academy Award Best Picture to a South Korean film. How can a foreign movie get the honour? How bad was the Academy Awards this year? He asked a screaming horde of similar deep-thinking supporters. Hard to believe he got the grammar wrong. How bad were, not how bad was. But it must have been a simple slip because I'm sure he's also the most expert grammarian ever, ever. We've got enough problems with South Korea on trade. On top of it, they give them the best movie of the year. Was it good? I don't know. Indicating either he hadn't seen it 
or he had seen it and had no idea what it was about. So not only is he his country's greatest legal mind, but also its eminent cultural authority. Yet the cruel, cruel distributor of the movie bitterly counted, understandable, it's, it's subtitled, he can't read. What an insult. What discourtesy. Doesn't it show the jealousy and envy truly great people, in this case greatest ever, ever, must suffer for their greatness? And then at a press conference to assure citizens they had nothing to fear from coronavirus, thanks to his actions, the greatest actions ever, ever, he announced himself as its greatest ever, ever medical specialist, opening the way for Donald to staple as many as four Nobel Prizes next year, given the Peace Prize as a shoo-in over Donald's contribution to the Palestinian non-people, non-country cause, taking whatever little bits of land they selfishly occupy occupy off them and thus leaving them nothing to fight over. And as the medical reassurance, it's totally under control, conference ended, they announced lots of new cases. Donald said the new cases were obviously Democrats bent on attacking him with fake news. Worst fake news ever, ever. Sorry to spend so much time on Donald, but he's a walk-up start. On coronavirus, Trublu was his highest paid corporate big supremo, the flying kangaroo's Alan Joystick, and aren't we all so proud of the flying kangaroos since the sadly lamented nuclear hawk himself and the world's greatest worst treasurer, Paul, freed it from the bloated hand of the inefficient public sector when we all owned it. Anyway, Alan said he was taking a decision as business declines due to the virus for the good of our people. Just a few days after threatening to replace some of the good people with scab labour. Sorry, sorry, that's illegal. With workers prepared to do a more than a fair day's work for less than a fair day's pay. And what decision have you made for the good of your people, Alan? I will make 750 of them no longer our people. Reducing their income to zero, leaving our earning literally infinity times their non-wage. Doesn't sacking, or sorry, sadly having to let go, downsize 750 workers for their own good, show Al is a big George Orwell fan. Notice the government is now offering businesses compensation for losses due to the virus. Not sure why it's the public purse's responsibility to interfere in the market, although the caring business class community, which loathes socialism and anything remotely like socialism, is very sure it is the government's responsibility, and, and they're the experts in laissez-faire market forces. But we have to give the government top marks for its honesty this time in making the clear proviso... Marginal seats only need apply. As it finds billions to assist businesses across the country affected by the virus and the summer disasters, which had nothing to do with climate change, the government knows it had nothing to do with, can't help thinking, how can it afford this largesse, billions for the caring business class, but keep repeating it can't afford to pay dole bludgers one cent more than the massive handout the dole bludgers are whooping it up on? Oh dear, and after picking up Donald Trample the Poor in a grammatical error, on which the doll budgers are whooping it up.
Finally, proving we don't need a good caring business class integrity bill, caring employers who owe billions, literally billions, in unpaid superannuation, including the deductions from their workers' wages, an offence with massive penalties, have been granted an amnesty by the government, a promise they won't be prosecuted for inadvertently getting their workers' money mixed up with their profits. Because good caring employers are not evil like like evil workers. Amazing how they can keep quoting integrity without blushing. Good afternoon. Mr Kevin Healy, and don't forget, 9 o'clock tomorrow morning for City Limits. The low-expected extradition hearing in London of Australian journalist and founder of WikiLeaks, Julian Assange, began on the 25th of February at the High Security Woolwich Crown Court. Next door to the Belmarsh High Security Prison, where Julian has been held mostly in solitary confinement for the past 10 months. With me early today was Jacob Gregg, journalist, broadcaster and member of Melbourne for WikiLeaks. From what I have read and heard, what happened in and around the courtroom at the Woolwich Crown Court wouldn't have occurred in the legal system of a despotic dictator. The day before the hearing began, he had his um, cell searched and he was strip searched. And then again on the first day of the hearing, he was strip searched twice, once before and once in the middle of the hearing. So it seems to me like it's a um, an attempt to just break his spirit. But the fact that he can't talk properly to his lawyers, where does that fit in with the legal system in Britain? It doesn't. Putting him in the glass box... I mean, Mark Summers, one of Julian's legal representatives, uh, QC, there was a separate hearing to talk about letting him out of the glass box, for example. Mark Summers spoke about the case of Belisov versus Russia. In that case, the European Court of Human Rights said that Russia, because Russia had been tried in a glass cage, it hindered his participation and his free access to counsel and deprived him of human dignity as a defendant. So the European Court of Human Rights has already said that that is an illegal way to treat a prisoner. And yet that is what the United Kingdom is doing. It's British justice. But the whole procedure, Um, even for years up to the... It's been a miscarriage of justice. I mean, people are referring to it as a show trial. It sort of is, but they're not even going to the point of making the show that justice is being meted out here. I think what they're doing here, and we're moving to the to a next stage of I don't know what of the way the state controls people and controls activists. It's magistrate and what's her name, Vanessa Barris Baratza, is just exhibiting total disdain for not only Julian Assange but for his defence team. You know, she's saying that he can yell out from the box, he can pass the notes, and at the same time, when um, his counsel points out that he's been banned from passing notes she comes back and says that's a matter for group four and the prison authorities and it's not even group four by the way it's circo but she doesn't even know who's providing her who's providing the security there it's just total disdain and craig murray who's a former diplomat has been reporting from the trial each day and he pointed out that from his position right at the end he could see the top of the judge's desk Now, they're probably going to change that now that he's published it in print. He's saying that Vanessa Baratza's judgment 
on whether Julian can come out of the glass box was already on a piece of paper on her desk before she heard any arguments. So she came in with a judgment and the whole trial, the whole case was a sham. I mean, she's been directed by um, Chief Magistrate Arbuthnot, who started, who started Julian's trial. Her husband is a Defence Department official and uh, was a Defence Department official and a member of the, um, of the British Parliament on the Defence Oversight Committee. The, the whole establishment is conspiring together, as we know they always do in the case of Julian's trial. There's no justice being done whatsoever. Are representatives of the US governments also there, visible? Yeah, representatives of the, U, U, representatives of the US government are visible in the court and they're openly in the court. You know, they should be because the US government is, is bringing the case for extradition. So it's the US government's barrister that's arguing the case. Yes, but not actually sitting behind her or whatever and directing the, the magistrate what to do next. Not openly, no. There have been a couple of times when people from the prosecution have approached the magistrate and um, spoke to her. God knows what they said. But, um, no, it's not like they're sitting over her shoulder. And what are the fundamental accusations against Julian that were being presented last week? There are a couple. First of all, and, and the main one is, by releasing the information, that he placed lives at risk. And therefore, he needs to be tried in the United States under the Espionage Act. And also that he assisted Chelsea Manning in accessing Department of, the US Department of Defence computer systems. Now, both those have been shown to be, to be fabrications. And Private Manning had access to all the information that she leaked. What Julian did was help her cover her tracks basically, at most, which is what any journalist would do. The other thing about placing people's lives at risk, ironically, Chelsea Manning was herself in court in the same week in Virginia. US prosecution there accepted that no lives had been put at risk by Chelsea Manning's leaks. So you have a strange situation where in two separate jurisdictions, the US government is producing separate facts or taking separate lines. Judge Baratza has said that whatever is said in a U.S. Constitu in a U.S. constituted course in the court martial that Chelsea Manning was sitting through did not have any bearing in her jurisdiction. So basically, what she's by, by saying that what she's saying is I don't care what the facts are, and she said that a number of times. You know, for for example, um, Edward Fitzgerald, who's who's been the the main lawyer arguing for Julian in the extradition trial, has pointed out that the extradition treaty with the United States exempts or, or makes it or doesn't apply to political prisoners and political crimes. Baratza has said that the treaty doesn't matter, that the extradition act in the United Kingdom doesn't mention political crimes. So even though the Extradition Act says you can only extradite people to countries with which you have an extradition treaty, and the treaty itself excludes political situations, and it's just saying that the treaty doesn't matter. So even when documents like the treaty between the United States and the United Kingdom that this whole extradition process was predicated on, 
this saying it doesn't matter what's in the treaty. Reminds me of nothing, of nothing so much of, you know, when one of my kids was three or four years old and um, I fronted him with something he'd done and he was standing in the middle of the devastation with his arms folded and just saying, no, it wasn't me. It's total bald-faced lying. And what happens if the lawyers pick her up on this? What does she do then? She just basically points out that it's her court and her jurisdiction and what she says goes. Why was Chelsea in court in Virginia? Uh, Chelsea was in court in Virginia. I'm not sure of the exact charges, but it was a court. It was part of the court martial proceedings. She's back in jail, of course, for refusing to testify against Julian. If she is court martial, does that mean that they have to let her out of prison? Um, I don't know. I honestly don't know that one, mate. The lawyers are arguing that it's a punitive sanction. Oh, no, the lawyers, sorry, the lawyers lodged the motion. It's not part of the court martial. The lawyers lodged the motion with the federal court um, to free her after she, after 11 months of detention. And she's been, you know, because she's in jail and being fined $1,000 a day for um, refusing to testify against Julian. Let's go back to the court in London. What happened to the present head of WikiLeaks? Icelandic journalist. Kristen Hrifensen. On, I think it was day two, day two of the trial, he was lined up because, to start with, I've got to tell you something about the court. The extradition trial is being held by the Westminster Court, in, in the Westminster Court, but it's not in the Westminster Court. They've moved the court, the physical location and the physical location of the court only, to a court attached to Belmarsh Prison which was built to try people who were up on major terror charges and major murder charges. So even though it's not happening within the Belmarsh Court legal system, it's happening under the jurisdiction of the Westminster Court, they've moved it to the Belmarsh Court. Now, to get to the Belmarsh Court, it's isolated from anywhere public. You have to queue for sometimes two and a half, three hours before the court starts to be allowed in. You have to go past all kinds of razor wire fences and all the rest of it in order to get in, walk through unprotected open pathways. And, you know, it's it's winter in London right now, so it's it's cold. And we're talking about people being having to line up from before 8 o'clock in the morning. That's the situation to start with. They've moved the court to a, I don't know what you'd call it, to something that I could probably only refer to as a star chamber. Now, Kristen was lined up, and it was day two, and they called out his name, not only his name, Kristen Trefferson, but they actually referred to him as editor of WikiLeaks. Now, he went and made himself known to the people who called his name, and they told him that he was specifically banning him from the trial. And when he asked why, he was told it was just the decision of the court. No explanation given. So at that you know, at that point, um, Julian's family, John Shipton from Melbourne, is um, over there at the time, and his brother, Gabriel, and they said that if that was the case, they wouldn't go in either and began to, to walk out. And after about, oh, I don't know, I think it was 15, 20 minutes, they relented and Kristen was admitted. Nobody understands why he was first excluded from the, from the trial. Later on, the media asked officials why Christian was banned to start with, and they said it was over queue jumping, 
and um, that it was a case of mistaken identity. So on the one hand, they're referring to him as Christian Heffernson, editor of WikiLeaks, and on the other on the other hand, they're saying it was queue jumping, and they thought he was just jumping a few. They knew who he was. Not like they had a case of mistaken identity. Well, if Julian's so much a, a threat to the world, he must be following on in his footsteps. How come he was allowed into the court at all? I don't think they they wanted him there, but they don't have a choice. I mean, they tried to ban him, but I think it was too much when Julian's whole family and supporters decided that they too would walk out in solidarity, which I've got to say, big ups to John Shipton for that. And uh, that's what brought the media attention onto the fact that Christian was banned from the court. Christian's no fool. He knows that his continued work with WikiLeaks, he could just as easily, he could be there in the dock next to Julian at any stage. Wondering how many representatives of the media were allowed into the court? This is the thing. There's a separate gallery, a separate part for the media, but the media aren't reporting, basically, on what goes on in the court. The Prosecution Council, their opening statement, was provided to the media. The counsel for the um, prosecution actually addressed the media and made it clear. He kept saying, I'm saying this to the media. I'm saying this for the media. I want to make sure the media get this right. He then provided his um, his opening statement. I'm just trying to, to see on my, my paperwork here. He actually said, I'm trying to find the exact quote, sorry, mate, but he said, to make sure the media get this right. He then provided his statement to the media. The mainstream media just copied and pasted from that statement. Media is complicit. At which point, when you're in court, you address the court. I've been in very minor court cases for protest and related matters myself, and there have been a couple of times when I've been pulled up and told to address the court rather than the gallery. And yet this Lewis has actually said he's addressing the media, and the, the fact that the court actually let him get away with that is outrageous to start with, and that's, that was his opening statement. How did the hearing finish? It's not finished, mate. It was just... Um, all that the first, this first week, last week, did was outline what arguments that they're gonna, that they're gonna present. It resumes on the 18th of May. Or, as I say, it just said, the US government said, we're gonna show that he, that he placed people at risk, that he assisted Chelsea Manning to hack the system, and that we need to extradite him because he needs to be tried in the US court. And Julian's mob are saying that, A, these allegations are fabricated, and B, even if they weren't, because it's a political matter, it doesn't um, fall under the, the purview of the extradition treaty. Talk about the, the way that justice has been denied. So that's all, all that happened in the last week was setting out what, you know, the overview of what each party was going to present come May. So Julian goes back to the same conditions he was in before this hearing? Goes back to the same conditions he was in before the hearing and dare I say even worse conditions. Could it be worse? Even worse. Well even worse conditions because up until the hearing he probably had some hope if the hearing wasn't going to be totally fair 
that at least he would be able, they'd be able to put his arguments forward. But that hope is, I dare say, has now been shattered. I can understand that because while I intellectually have no faith in the British justice system or the Australian justice system for that matter, I guess there was still a part of me that believed intrinsically, viscerally, I guess I could say, that if you had your arguments right, you had all your ducks in a row and you spoke the truth, people had to listen. That even though justice is weighed against us, if you could show that this didn't happen or that did happen, then they have no option but to take notice. As I say, while I, I didn't believe that intellectually, I imagine Julian, I know a lot of his supporters, I know a lot of the WikiLeaks people felt, felt the same, that while we intellectually felt it or intellectually knew it, what happened last week is the, the visceral kick in the guts that comes when you see that this is all the, the real state of British justice. Well, where does this leave all his supporters all around the world? Well, feeling shattered a little bit, quite frankly, but also very much resolved to continue the fight. We're meeting tonight in Melbourne to talk about the next stage of the campaign. It's all a little bit, what's the word, up in the air at the moment because it's, um, as I say, the, the whole idea was based on some kind of faith in the, in the system of justice which has now been shown to be um, misplaced. What's your thoughts on the push to, for him to seek asylum in France? <sighs> My personal feeling is it's a, it's a desperate plea by his supporters in France. It's a desperate plea. Um, he's been offered asylum in Switzerland, in Geneva, but no one's going no to let him out. I mean, he's been offered asylum in, in Geneva, but there's no way the, the British government's going to let him travel to... Geneva to take up their offer. He's a prisoner of the British justice system. The only place they're going to let him go at the moment is the United States. I think the only option that we have is for the Australian government to intervene because you've got to remember, you know, first and foremost, Julian is an Australian citizen and we do have a good relationship, quote, you know, and listeners can't see the air quotes there, but they're there with the United States, and if the Australian government could grow a set and, um, and intervene on Julian's behalf, as they have with prisoners being held in Cambodia and Iran and Egypt and all other kinds of places, uh, it's the only way we're going to get him out of this extradition trial. And so I think the push needs to be on the Australian government. At the No Extradition Rally two weeks ago, we had... Um, Two of the, um, the parliamentary groups supporting Julian, um, Andrew Wilkie by Video Leak and Julian Hill, a Labor member from Dandenong Way, calling on just that for the Australian government to finally stand up and do what it is entrusted to do when voted in by the people of Australia, and that is protect its citizens. Finally, Jake and I'm just thinking of what all the publishers and journalists who publish the WikiLeaks files are feeling now, and indeed journalists all over the world. Well, this is why James Lewis, the, um, the prosecutor, was addressing the media. What he was doing was saying that, was trying to say, counter the argument that Julian's team and, and Julian's support have been putting forward in saying that if he's tried, anybody can be tried. 
and he was saying, you know, you're the mainstream media, we're not going to do this to you. He was saying that it's not true that mainstream outlets like the New York Times and The Guardian can have the same charges put against them, but they can be. They can be. And even, uh, what's her name, and Barista um, said that they could be from the, from the bench. So it just blows my mind, to be honest, Jen, why the rest of the media aren't supporting Julian in, in this regard. I guess what they're, I, I guess what they're doing is trying to keep a low profile. It did get a bit of publicity and we had Peter Grester backtracking just a little. Yeah, Peter Grester backtracked just a little. And, and this is the whole point. All the, the cloud of bullshit that happens around this. There's, you know, like Peter Grester said, he's not a journalist was the initial claim of Peter's. Now, what is a journalist? The American government called him a journalist. A journalist is anyone who reports and publishes news. It's not as if journalists have any special rights afforded to them under these laws. So the whole question about whether or not he was a journalist is just basically a furphy. Even if he's not a journalist, even if he's an individual human being, it doesn't mean that he hasn't got a right to publish. I mean, what was Peter Grester trying to say? That only journalists can publish material? That only journalists have a right to produce news? I mean, where does that leave social media? Working for a community radio station, are you or I journalists? According to Peter Grester, I guess not. But he did backtrack and say he was part of the journalism ecosystem, whatever the hell that means. I, I guess someone selling a newspaper is part of the journalism ecosystem. You need more people to join your group? We would love more people to get involved. Um, you know, there are only... There are basically only a few of us in Melbourne working on the campaign full-time. Well, no, there are people working on a whole lot of different levels. You know, there are people within the Green who are um, working in Parliament. There are, um, you know, the legal team like Julian Burnside. They're based in Melbourne. Melbourne for WikiLeaks is the group that I'm primarily working with. Is a grassroots organisation for people to lobby with um, different community organisations and organise events on the streets and to try to generate publicity for Julian. We'd love people to get involved and they, the best way they can do that, I guess, would be just looking up Melbourne for WikiLeaks on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram and sending us a message. Thanks, Jacob. Thanks a lot, Jan. Sounds a bit weary there, but you can get in there and help him by these. Getting onto his um, Facebook page. That's Jacob Gregg from Melbourne for WikiLeaks. Tune in to 3CR on March 8th as we dish up another feast of radical ideas to end gender inequality. Centering the voices of First Nations, refugee, migrant women and gender diverse people. Challenging liberal and corporate feminisms in discussions on sovereignty, workers' rights, nuclear disarmament, environmental justice, animal rights, as well as music and performance. From 11pm Saturday, March 7 to midnight Sunday, March 8 on 3CR Digital, 8.55am and streaming at 3cr.org.au. Check the website for more details. Roasting the Patriarchy. Recipes for dismantling the system. We're told that the economy is in trouble. 
with floods, bushfires, drought and now the impact of the coronavirus on education, tourism, not to mention pressure on local businesses and the health system. But not so as seemingly unlimited support for the US war machine. The latest addition, the allocation of between 1.1 and 1.6 billion, yes, billion, to the upgrade of the Northern Territory RAAF base at Tyndall, 15 k's outside Catherine and 320 k's southeast of Darwin. Looking at the history of Tyndall Base, this proposal is not the first time it's been used by the US. In fact, the airfield was constructed by the US Army during World War II. I'm speaking with Stephen Darley, a member of IPAN, Independent Peaceful Australia Network in South Australia. What is actually being proposed for this huge amount of money, Stephen? Well, it's a combination of lengthening runways, building new sheds for planes, some ramps as well. It's just basically making it capable of having more planes based there or for longer periods there and having different planes landing there. As you can tell, it's, we're not quite sure whether it's 1.1 or 1.6 billion. The, the way they announced it, it was a little bit um, unclear, but it's a very large amount of money. It certainly is. So it's not just uh, an upgrade to the uh, to the toilets or something like that. It's it's a, it's a major upgrade. Does that mean that U.S. service people will also be staying there? Well, it's not clear whether the bombers will be who are part of the upgrade. In fact, from my point of view, the the main reason for it will be based there or simply be rotating there. But yes, it would seem likely that they would stay there. Um, uh, the uh, currently bombers are, are coming to the Northern Territory relatively infrequently. Um, this would seem to to be, and uh, you know, we're having to speculate because they they simply don't announce these details. But they'll be there for a longer period. Of course, we already have two and a half thousand U.S. Marines based in the Northern Territory near Darwin. So this, you could say, is a, another de facto U.S. base? Well, effectively, yeah. I mean, it's, not, it's going to be, uh, it's an Australian Air Force base, so there will be Australian Air planes there. They're, they're making a great deal of saying the um, F-35 will be, uh, will be based there. But it's going to be, to the thinking of, of our organisation, the presence of long-range bombers, particularly nuclear-capable and likely nuclear-armed bombers, is more significant than the uh, F-35 fighters for Australia. So, yeah, we certainly see it as being at least halfway to an American base. And I'm just wondering who the Aboriginal people in the area, how far away from these bombers and nuclear weapons are going to be? No idea. Normal American practice is, of course, not to know to confirm nor deny whether any ship or plane is carrying nuclear weapons but we do know that the B-1 bombers in particular um, are commonly carrying nuclear bombs. No debate in Parliament about this. There's no room or little room for scrutiny by concerned citizens and this is because it's underwritten by the Forces Posture Agreement and that was signed yeah. in 2014. Can we go back to yeah. that signing and how it came about? 
Well, it's basically a part of the um, what they called uh, under the Obama government in the U.S. the uh, pivot to the Pacific, where the Americans decided they wanted to shift their emphasis of their um, planes and ships to the Pacific, and basically, therefore, to China as a larger target of their activity, um, as opposed to Europe. So they, they changed emphasis from Europe to the Pacific. They wanted uh, more bases and more activity or more possible places for them to conduct war from, I suppose, is the, uh, the simple way of doing it. I mean, the way the military works, redundancy is very important, having more than one place. And of course, the Americans have 800 bases around the world. So the Northern Territory was useful to them in that way. It is still quite a long way from China, but it's not simply about China itself. A, a key place for the Northern Territory to be focused on is the Straits of Molucca, which is the Straits between the Straits by Singapore, which is one of the main routes between the Indian and Pacific Oceans. Um, and the obvious intention there is the possibility of closing off Chinese trade. And so uh, American forces with Australian auxiliaries would be focused on closing off those straits to Chinese commercial as well as military um, ships. And that's, that's one of the reasons why the Northern Territory is, um, is important to the Americans, relatively southerly though it is. But it is within the range, long-range bombers for, for um, China. These bombers can go 14,000 kilometers without needing to be refueled. They're capable of flying to at least southern China and back again to Australia if they want to. But, of course, they've also got other bases in, in the region like Guam. Was there any debate in Parliament about putting this agreement into place? No. I mean, this upgrade to Tendal is in the same character because... Although it was just announced um, a couple of weeks ago, um, it had already been $500 million spent on it. So the, uh, the, the activity was, was well underway. The main reason why they did an announcement was because the Prime Minister went up there to swan around, I suppose, and to be associated with it. But the actual activity, the um, upgrade, had started some time before. $500 million worth before. You can do a lot with $1.1 or $1.6 billion, can't you? You certainly can. And, of course, the interesting point is that it's for both countries and uh, we're spending the money like good little um, pet dogs. Well, this, this is our, another one of our contributions to the U.S. war machine. That's right. And, of course, one of the things that Trump said when he came into office was that he wanted... Australia uh, wanted the U.S. allies to spend more, to pay more of the share of the the cost of, well, I think it was some term like mutual defense. We found the idea of defense dubious in, in this respect. But anyway, he wanted to reduce American costs by having European but also other allies spend more of their money on the uh, combined activities. And so this is an epitome of that. Now, there is a distinct possibility that nuclear weapons would be on these planes, and this comes yep. at a time when there's a proposed treaty to ban nuclear weapons. Yes, I think it's a clear example that uh, Australia has no intention of signing that treaty um, in the 
short to medium term because, of course, it would ban such weapons from from being there. It's it's not simply about possessing such weapons as a country, but allowing such weapons to be based or to transit through your country. That's that's uh, those are all components of the uh, nuclear weapons ban treaty, and so that would not allow such weapons to to be rotating through Australia or to be based here, whether they were Australian or not. So there's virtually no role in all of this for civil society? Well, as you said, no parliamentary scrutiny of it, no, not to think. Not that we think there'd be any strong likelihood of the um, Labour Party voting against it, but it would at least give, um, if it had been discussed in Parliament, it would give people a chance to hear about it, to have their parliamentary representatives um, stand up and, and, and make a point about it. But We've not afforded that as well. I mean, they debate a lot of trivial things in Parliament, as you know, um, but they often don't debate anything to do with foreign policy. Um, it's just, just a given. And you think at the time when we've got all the, the costs blowing out because of floods, droughts, bushfires, and now a virus, that the government is willing to spend an awful lot of money to promote war? Well, it is. I mean, the 10-year spending actually is, is now, it was originally $200 billion on defence. It's now up to $250 billion, mainly because of blowouts in the cost of, of current equipment, like the F-35, the uh, future frigates, and also the future submarines. So that seems to be a given in spending terms, whereas on so many other things, they're... Um, telling us that they haven't got the money for it. Not enough money has been spent on it uh, in, in preparation, such as the, uh, for the bushfires. And when you think that that huge amount of money that's going to those fighters and the submarines, by the time they're operational, to any large extent, they're extinct themselves. Well, that's true, but with the F-35, it's more than that. The F-35... Doesn't um, work. ...joint strike packer, it doesn't really work. It's notorious in the U.S., but, I mean, that's, it's kind of the epitome of the American industrial, uh, military-industrial complex because it's, its purpose is more for, um, for making profits for military-industrial companies rather than, than actually being used. Now, you know, military people dis- dispute that, but the number of stories about the F-35 and the problems that it has just uh, um, are legion. I've never seen anything quite as uh, many problems with, and it's taken 20 years. It's getting to the stage now when Australia's only just getting uh, its first F-35s in the last couple of years, So, and they're eventually going to get 100. So we're going to get 100 planes, which may not work very well, um, at, a, at an incredible cost. And you just wonder, as um, Mike Scrafton wrote a couple of weeks ago, what do the Chinese think of the US-Australian alliance? with this expansion of the base in Northern Territory? Yeah, there were some signals last year that they, um, I think it was at the time of the expansion of uh, Darwin and putting more Marines in there, they um, started, and I didn't link these two directly themselves, but they held up Australian coal coming to China um, uh, for quite some time in ways when it was obvious that it was they were actually um, doing this deliberately um, and I think it was a signal. Now of course the Chinese want 
Australian minerals, and so you don't know how much they're going to affect their own economy by this. But as it gets to a point where Australia's role with America becomes more and more obvious and more and more offensive, which the American posture is, I think the Chinese are almost certainly going to retaliate in a number of ways. They're already being blamed for the possibility of a world recession as a result of the coronavirus, which, you know, has become the kind of um, total explanation for a global uh, recession, even though global recession's been coming for some time. And so it's another example of the, the way in which um, China becomes blamed for everything. Um, and uh, you don't want to get a situation in which the Chinese start to get paranoid the way some countries get in international relations, um, and they lash out, you know, and Australia is obviously one possible target for that lashing out. And, of course, when you've got someone like Trump at the head of the United States, you never know what he's going to do next, and there's a strong possibility that he'll still be there next year. Well, that's right. I mean, it seems the, the Democrat Big Party are more concerned with stopping each other or possibly Bernie Sanders from becoming the candidate than they are with defeating Trump. And Trump, as you said, is so um, volatile, so up and down in his decision-making. You know, he makes a decision one day and then reverses it the next, that um, we, we simply don't know what he's going to do. I mean, it, it seems he's pushed to and fro by different influences in his cabinet, including what we've just been talking about, the military-industrial complex. They've got their representatives, so to speak, within his um, cabinet and his advisors, and they pull him in one way. You know, other people pull him in other directions. But, um, yeah, you don't know what he's going to do, and that makes someone who's in the front line, so to speak, in Australia, um, puts them in a, a invidious situation. But you never get any sign of that from the Australian government. All right, well, thank you once again, Stephen. That's all right. And that's Stephen Darley, a member of IPAN in South Australia, Independent Peaceful Australia Network. Time here, 3CR is 449. The federal government has just announced plans for a radioactive waste dump in Kimba on Bangala country. BHP is expanding the Olympic Dam uranium mine. Now is the time to join the radioactive resistance. Hit the road with Friends of the Earth Melbourne's Nuclear Free Collective as we travel to frontline communities and see how the nuclear industry impacts people. The radioactive exposure tour will run from April 10 to 19 this year. More details on melbournefoe.org.au slash radtour2020 or contact us on radexposuretour at gmail.com. Bo's Nuclear Free Campaign is a 3CR supporter. On the 27th of February, the National Day of Western Sahara was marked in Sydney by raising the flag of the Sahrawi Republic. This happened at 10am at the Leichhardt Town Hall. And here in Melbourne on the following Sunday, a picnic in the Edinburgh Gardens to mark the day. I'm speaking once again with Kate Lewis from the Australia Western Sahara Association 
And Kate, just remind us all what happened on the 27th of February and what year that was. In 1976, Spain finally withdrew from Western Sahara. Morocco had been trying to invade since the year before, but then they had this agreement called the Tripartite Agreement with uh, Spain and Mauritania, the country to the south of Western Sahara, and Morocco decided to invite Mauritania to kind of look after one half and they would look after the northern half. Spain agreed to this and so then the Spanish had to withdraw. So they, on the 26th of February 1976, they withdrew officially. On the 27th of February, the Sahrawi declared, made a uni- unilateral declaration of independence, more or less. They declared the Sahrawi Republic, but Morocco wasn't having anything like that happening, and so the war uh, continued, and it actually went on for 14 years. I think the young people who, as many, many of them were young in the Polisario in those days, the uh, Sahrawi liberation movement was made up largely of students and young people in their 20s. They... uh, never could have imagined that it would be still continuing 44 years later, I think it is. That part's a bit depressing, and it's also not good how things are shaping up, really, for right at the minute. It's a bit of a logjam, or not. Ampas has come in the United Nations peace process. Um, Morocco's making big efforts to have their occupation simply declared okay. They just wanted legitimized. This is a very worrying development for international politics in general, really, not just for the Sahrawi people. And I suppose part of that is um, the issue of staking your claim to the maritime space of Western Sahara. That's a new part of this whole general enterprise to do with the fisheries, I suppose, because it's been claimed that they have no right to fish in the waters, coastal waters of Western Sahara. I guess that's part of what they've been... Because the Sahrawi actually did make their maritime claim back in 2009. That was also a little bit late in the day because they could have done that much sooner, but they certainly got well ahead of the Moroccans who are only catching up over 10 years later with the idea that they could do the same thing. I don't know how the international authority, whoever it is, who sort of uh, runs the international law of the sea uh, law, there is some kind of uh, a body overseeing it, I think, how they will resolve the question. And, of course, we can't imagine that they could legitimise the Moroccan claim. And it will be very serious if they do. What's it got to do with the European Parliament? Ah, because the... European European Union have made a fishing agreement with Morocco. The uh, European Court of Justice legislated that this couldn't be legal and the uh, Moroccans had no right over the resources belonging to Western Sahara. They said Western Sahara is a distinct territory that is different from Morocco. And so anything that applies to Morocco including tariffs on trade or anything like that, does not apply 
to Western Sahara. Yet, despite the highest court in the European Union having made that finding, the European Parliament, under huge pressure from Morocco, of course, passed a new agreed a, a new fishing agreement. I think that if, you know, if there's as there will be, and there is happening, I think, legal action saying they shouldn't have this agreement. How could they have passed it after that? We you know, would like to be able to say, oh, well, it's our space, it's our maritime space, so we can allow fishing rights. I think that's what they're trying to do. The EEZ, the Exclusive Economic Zone, goes for 200 nautical miles, I think, from the coast. So that means that it has, there are some parts of the Atlantic where there's no contention, but in the north of Morocco, where the Canary Islands lie only 100 kilometres from the coast, so they're going to have to negotiate with Spain how to divide that territory. And that same goes for the Sahrawis. I don't think they've brokered a deal with Spain either about those bits. And then in the south... Uh, just where uh, Mauritania starts and, and, and ends, and uh, that's also something that would need a negotiation. However, we will see what happens. It's, it's uh, certainly one of the uh, active fronts at the moment. They've tried all kinds of ways of, of approaching this issue and just trying one thing after another, including making deals with people about trade or in one case, saying that they, the Trump administration was approached to ask Israel to recognize Moroccan sovereignty over Western Sahara. At that time, John Bolton was the national security advisor for Trump, and he wouldn't allow that to happen. So now that John Bolton has left that position, the Moroccans are having another go at that one. If uh, they got any country at all to officially recognize Moroccan sovereignty in Western Sahara, that would be a big breakthrough for them. What's in it for Israel? Uh, Morocco would be, uh, be a kind of um, bridge between the Arab and uh, Jewish world. Another thing I have just heard, I can't even remember where I saw it, that they are opening consulates foreign consulates in Western Sahara. Who are? The Moroccans are allowing or encouraging other countries to open a consulate in El Ayoun. So that's another way that they're trying to legitimise this occupation. This sounds a bit like Israel allowing the US Embassy to be opened in Jerusalem. Exactly, and Israel has got a lot... Of, of common ground with Morocco in that way because it's occupying a lot of somebody else's territory as well, which they also are very keen to legitimise. One little glimmer is that uh, South Africa is taking over the presidency of the African Union at the moment. And how much influence does the African Union have over what's happening in Western Sahara? Of course, as usual, the Moroccans try to make it as little as possible. But officially, they're supposed to be partners with the United Nations in creating a a peace process and and a vote of self-determination. The last colony in Africa. The last colony in Africa. It's very much to the heart of 
all of the other African nations who have all had successful struggles, independence away from colonial powers. They feel that until they they often quote the slogan, nobody is free until we are all free. That's certainly the position, very strong position of South Africa. So African Union, do they take votes on things or how how are they going to address this issue? Again, it's going to be hard if they don't get full cooperation from the United Nations as well. For example, in the past, back in the, I can't remember, 80s and 90s, the African Union, when it became a proper partner with the United Nations, they had a mission in El Ayun that was part of Minerso working for the vote of the referendum of self-determination. And when I first visited the the Sahrawi refugee camps, two of these ambassadors were visiting uh, there at, at, in the camps. And I met these guys, and, and, and they put on a beautiful performance of dance, Sahrawi dance and everything that we as a foreign delegation were invited to attend along with these African dignitaries. One of them was an Ethiopian guy who'd been there for years in, in Ayun. So, yeah, quite what they were able to do and all that, I'm not too sure. I guess it's a, uh, a work in progress and one hopes that somehow they will be able to cut through and get something to happen. It's Kate Lewis from the Australia Western Sahara Association and we'll be hearing more from Kate on the program next week. Let's hear from Jacob once again. Hi, I'm Jacob from the Friday Rave and I'm also on 3CR's Committee of Management. Now, the community of passionate people that founded 3CR a long time ago made some tough decisions. For a start, they committed themselves and a growing community of listeners to back their vision of owning our station and in doing so remaining independent of the government and corporate influence. They did this by fundraising, brick by brick, with working bees, door knocks, on-air drives and all the rest of it. You've all been there. Now, their commitment has kept 3CR on air for over 40 years. That's a long time even in my life. But now, we need your commitment to keep this great thing going. Now, you can subscribe online at 3cr.org.au or phone us at the station on 94198377 or even stop me on the bloody street if you see me at some rally or other and ask me for a membership form. You need to become a member of Melbourne Radical Radio and subscribe. Last week, the Prime Minister of Malaysia, Mahathir Mohamed, tendered his resignation to the King. Many believed to thwart the transfer of power to Anwar Ibrahim, to whom he promised to hand over power after two years at the helm of the government. But events have overtaken them both. Lee Tan, political activist, has been following events. And Lee, you call it the coup. Can you explain why? Yes, it is. It's been, um, well, you know, media commentator and other politicians have been calling it a coup d'etat, basically, but it's a non-military, non-violence type of coup, but it's really just backdoor politicking. Uh, 
yeah, buying over politicians or elected MPs, yeah, by various factions or various individuals in order to seize um, power. Yeah, it's basically a tussle between several people dragging along their party or supporters uh, with it's creating a chaos with no end in sight at this stage. Who are the main players? The main players initially were started by uh, a minister, a cabinet minister by the name of Azmin Ali. He belongs to the Coalition of Hope with the Pakatan Rayat, which is um, the ruling, one of the key party, well, in fact, the major party in the ru- ruling Coalition of Hope. He is hoping, well, he, his aim was to break away from uh, the Coalition of Hope and form government with Mahathir as a prime minister still with the ousted Barisan National Party. But Mahathir, in the end, did not support that particular coup. Instead, you know, had his own agenda to become the Prime Minister of People's Choice forever. And that got rejected by the King. And then, and then a, a new player who is the President of uh, Mahathir's own party, yeah, put in his own application with the King saying that he's got support from Barisan National, which is the ousted coalition from before, to be the Prime Minister. And the king accepted that, although Mahathir since then had gone back to the Coalition of Hope and also submitted the proposal to the king to say that he's actually got a number legally to return to being the prime minister with the Coalition of Hope. So it's all very complicated. Right now, there's a high court challenge filed by the Coalition of Hope against the appointment of uh, Muhyiddin as the prime minister by the king. So it's a bit of a constitutional mess at the moment. I'd imagine that a lot of people in Australia wouldn't realise that there actually is a king in Malaysia. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in the past, the kings actually play a very quiet role. I mean, they kind of more constitutional monarchy, if you want to put it that way, and they're not that high-profile prominent. And Mahathir has been one of the key political leaders who's been trying to downplay and weaken the power of the king, which is um, known as Agong in Malaysia. It's actually a selection, well, it's basically the various um, sultans taking turn to be the head of state that has got very minimal of political role, you know, except for having a constitutional position. But whilst Malaysia follows, it's a little bit like the yeah, basically, when once a uh, government is formed, they just seek the approval from the king to sign and seal, basically, to confirm it. But in this case, the king's actually did his own power play, supported by the other sultans in the country. Is this a precedent? No, this is actually quite a new development that's happening in Malaysia. Usually the, the king will go along with the parliamentary 
decision. But in, in this case, the king was put in the position of power because of the coup, which was fell, which had failed initially, but basically the intended target had not gone ahead, but instead, you know, this new kind of opportunistic situation occurred and the king stepped in to um, seal it as well. Is this a reincarnation of Umno that ruled for 60 years? Yes, it is, essentially. Basically, what we've got is um, a, a government that's been confirmed by the king, making up of the Ulster Coalition, which has been known for its grand corruption, the 1MDB scandal, which has rocked the world, basically. Yeah. So it's a very sad situation and um, the publics are still, you know, trying to figure out what to do about this. Definitely civil society has um, started to organize themselves to object to this very undemocratic backdoor politicking process that has resulted in the current mess. Can we say this sort of sounds a little bit like 1975 here in Australia? Yes, in some way, but it's not even... It's actually probably worse than that. In that sense, yes, it is very much a bit like the ousting of Whitlam, except that Whitlam at least has a set of very, very progressive policy. But the Coalition of Hopes, because Mahathir being the Prime Minister, has been controversial and losing support from the public. But having said that, the public is not prepared to let the ousted coalition Barisan National to return to power, especially when most of their leaders have been charged with severe, you know, serious corruption cases and pending trials and all that sort of stuff. Is there the possibility that they might be, those charges might be dropped? Of course, if this government, you know, eventually get into power, well, the the king's appointed prime minister and his um, coalition returns to power, then yes, many of these cases will somehow be dropped, and then it, there will be further erosion of a democracy in Malaysia with uh, legal reform and what have you. Although it may be tough because the majority in the parliament are still in the hands of more progressive or, well, you know, the alternative kind of uh, political parties that have a strong manifesto to reform the country, to make it more democratic. So it will be contested, but it's still not a good sign, and they can utilise law to make themselves permanent government by declaring, by putting together the emergency council and if that happens it can be a very very dangerous situation for Malaysia. How do these developments affect the Chinese and Indian communities? Well they are you know of course they are the minority in the government yes so a lot depends on the Malay the Muslim Malay to actually voice their dissent uh, and to work alongside the Indian and the Chinese population in Malaysia. And that's happening, you know. I've heard and seen uh, video clips posted on social media by very progressive Malay, uh, young Malay, who have courageously speaking out against the backdoor dealings that's 
happened in the last week. What about Anwar Ibrahim? What does this do for him? Initially, I think he was hoping to be able to return to power as a prime minister, uh, and he's put in his submission to the king, you know, stating that he's got enough number. But somehow it hasn't been successful, and Mahathir has been called back by the Coalition of Hope to be the prime minister. So Anwar Ibrahim is on at the back seat at the moment again. Yeah, so he's been very quiet since then. Well, Mahathir, even though he's 94 years old, he's not going to leave that lying no. down, is he, as you've said? Yes, yes. And that's a, that's a very, you know, interesting situation or very, in, in some way, quite a frustrating situation because at 94-year-old, um, he cannot live forever. And yet the country is kind of, well, the opposition, the now opposition, but voted in by the people uh, back in 2018, kind of relying on him to lead at least, you know, to, to sail through this period of emergency or chaos. What do you expect from civil society in the next week or so? I think they're getting organised and uh, they're hoping to, you know, call out the masses of people, both in Malaysia and also Malaysian all over the world, to rise up again to demand for legitimately voted in coalition of hope and to uphold the rule of law in Malaysia. How successful it is, nobody knows. And yeah, it is a, it's, it, a lot now depends on the High Court decision and also whether or not Barisan Nationals and the appointed Prime Minister will actually adhere to the rule of law should the High Court uh, rule against them in favour of the Coalition of Hope. Was this totally a surprise, what's happened over the weekend? Mm-hmm. Yes, of course. The appointment by the King of uh, Muhyiddin as the Prime Minister is a shock to most people, perhaps with the exception of those who are in Barisan National. But it is really not surprising in that sense that Mahathir has upset the so-called sultans all around Malaysia and they do not want to see him as a prime minister for fear that he will curtail their power. So it is not surprising that the sultans did not appoint Mahathir as the, well, the sultan actually, the, the king, did appoint Mahathir as the interim prime minister. It's the last minute dealings and willing that has changed all that. So, yeah, the outcome remains unknown for now. Yeah, I think the new appointed Prime Minister has declared that in March, I think 9th or 7th or something, uh, he will get into the office. Whether or not the High Court will rule against him, that's to be seen. And when might that happen, that High Court ruling? Uh, Yeah, we're not sure, but it will be before the March Parliament sitting, I think. Yeah. I think the plan is if the Prime Minister gets into his office and um, set a date for Parliament to, to meet, there will be a vote of no confidence on the Prime Minister by the Coalition of Hope. But whether or not, in the meantime, the High Court would intervene by making a ruling on the application from the Coalition of Hope remain to be seen. There was also a story looking at movements in Thailand connected to the one 
MDB. Yeah. Yes. What What's the yes. story about that? As you may know, and listeners may know, that uh, Najib Raza was also, he was the defence minister. And of course, you know, all people who are involved in defence would have dealings with uh, military powers elsewhere. And because so much money was involved in the scandal, he was able to use a lot of the looted money to pay off people, what, yeah, institutions to support him. So it is no surprising that the Thai military may have some links with the Najib 1MDB scandal to protect him and to also help him to facilitate that. The person who visa blue on 1MDB scandal, Dastro, uh, can his first name, a Swiss national who was in from one of the um, financial institutions which was embroiled in the 1MDB scandal who blew the visa was in Thai, the Thai jail. Yeah, and he was detained there and his life was actually at risk while he was in detention because um, obviously, you know, there'd be attempt by Malaysia to, at that time, to stop him from um, spilling the beans and also to provide evidence in cases, both in Switzerland and elsewhere. Fortunately, the Swiss government intervened and uh, eventually he was released. So where can this story go now? It all depends on what's happened in what's happening in Malaysia. If Barisan National uh, returned to power, or if People's Power and the judiciary system can actually restore democracy to reinstate the Coalition of Hope as, as the rightful government. So if that continues, then you know there'll be some level of justice. But if that's overturned, then, you know, it will, Malaysia will plunge into further corruption and probably more scandals. And just to remind people listening that the, the one MDB scandal was $4.5 billion. It's a lot of money. Yeah, that's figures, a lot of money. And we're talking about US dollars. I think there's something like somewhere between 5 billion to 12 billion US being squandered. For a little country like Malaysia, that's huge amount of money. And of course, you know, it affects Malaysia, Malaysia's economy and also international political standing to see that, you know, this is happening at the highest level of government at that time. Okay, I'll catch up with you in a, a week or so, Lee. Sure. Thank you, Jan. And that is Lee Tan. We wonder what will happen in Malaysia in the next couple of weeks, but I'm sure that Lee will have her finger on the pulse. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Two weeks ago on the program, Stephen Darley spoke about the US Air Force pilot whistleblower Brandon Bryant, a young person who from 2006 to 2011 was a camera operator, a sensor operator of unmanned drones of the US Air Force. His job targeted killing and his resultant post-traumatic stress disorder. Today we'll hear from Ed Kinane, a founder of the Upstate Drone Action Coalition based in New York. Ed has lived a life of activism, committed to freedom, justice and non-violence at home and abroad, 
of which the anti-drone campaign is the latest. I spoke with Ed late last week and began by asking him about that background in activism. Did it come from his parents? Well, yes and no. My father was a lifelong Republican, as was my mother, but my father was also involved in community affairs, and I think he was a good Republican, even though they both were Nixon Republicans, but that was the old Republican Party. So that gave me an orientation toward community service, although we were at loggerheads during the Vietnam War. I was into what I call privatism through my high school and college years. I was kind of a hobo uh, after college. I was, it was during the Vietnam War years. I was not an activist. I did not oppose the war in any active way, although mentally. I was very alienated from U.S. society and spent oh, several years just wandering, backpack, hitchhiking around the U.S. Ended up in Latin America being exposed to some of the poverty there. And it made me curious to know how it could be, given how fertile the land seemed to be in Guatemala, where I was traveling through. That led me to graduate school, the new school for social research in New York City, which is kind of a leftist place. And that helped me learn to think politically. Then I uh, taught anthropology for a couple of years, very angry about the U.S. role in the Vietnam War and My anger probably made me a poor teacher, and my contract wasn't renewed. Thereafter, there was a lot of uh, travel, including international travel, a lot of hitchhiking over several continents, seeing what I could of the human condition. I really do need sort of a timeline for myself because um, my memory is so poor, but I did, for for several years, I did a lot of uh, menial, transient work Can I take you back to the Vietnam War days? You say you weren't active? No, I was was involved in what I call privatism. My last two years of uh, college at Syracuse University, I worked pretty hard academically and, and, you know, got very engaged in academics. But the alienation I had from the society and such was sort of set me on the road of uh, mostly just wandering. Explain a bit more about that alienation. There were some some readings that were important to me. For example, Thoreau reading uh, Walden and Civil Disobedience, reading uh, books by Vance Packard. Uh, I don't know if you know that name, but he had a series of books. One, uh, let's see, what were they now? The Status Seekers. The alienation, can I, can I stay with that for a minute? From a hobo to academia, that's a big stretch. Well, it is, but when I was hitchhiking through Central America, you know, I, I just couldn't understand why there would be such poverty and oppression. I hadn't been politicized as an undergraduate, and somehow I got drawn to this school in New York City called the New School for Social Research which had a pretty rigorous curriculum that was very conscience-raising politically and and political economics. I majored in anthropology, and that just expanded my intellectual horizons a great deal. And so when I found myself teaching at a community college out in Seattle, I did more ranting than teaching, I'm afraid. 
as I mentioned, I wasn't, my contract wasn't renewed. I had a lot of anger around Vietnam. My family is not military at all, and, and really um, had little contact with military people. But I just felt like it was such an evil thing, the United States, you know, military Pentagon. When did you find out about the School of the Americas? That was in the early 90s uh, in a church basement. Uh, I heard Father Roy Bourgeois speak. I found him very engaging, and he put out the invitation to join this 40-day fast on the steps of the Capitol in Washington, D.C., which I joined, and I was a part of that 40-day fast. From then on, for oh, a number of years, I was very engaged in the um, School of the Americas Watch, led by Father Roy Bourgeois at Fort Benning, Georgia. Each November, myself and friends, my partner, would go down to Georgia, which is about 1,200 miles from Syracuse, New York, where I was born and raised and, and now lived, engaged in civil disobedience, which led to federal prison, a couple of stints in federal prison, for going on to the base, which is you know, trespass and a federal crime. So I did two months, my first stint, and then oh, a few years later, I, I was sentenced to, I think it was 16 months, because not only was I trespassing, but a handful of us put our bloody handprint on the, the sign at the entrance of the base. We were charged with depredation of government property. So in a sense, we were framed because our bloody handprints just washed off. I'm oversimplifying a bit, but that, that's basically it. What did you find out about the School of the Americas? The School of the Americas was on Fort Benning, Georgia, which is a huge military base, and it trained police and military from Latin America. Spanish was the language of instruction, and it trained them in anti-insurgency tactics and ideology which basically meant using the power, the, the military arm of the power structure in various Latin American countries to suppress their own people, to suppress initiatives for democracy. And these were hand-in-hand hand with uh, you know, U.S. corporations. It led to vast numbers of human beings, mostly peasants, campesinos, and those that were in solidarity with them being disappeared, tortured, assassinated by graduates of the school of America. Now, I left out something important here, which is that before getting involved in the School of the Americas, I was involved with an organization called Peace Brigades International. I worked on Peace Brigades International teams in Guatemala, in El Salvador, Sri Lanka, uh, and Haiti, doing what's, what we call then international protective accompaniment, which meant that most of us were um, from the north, the industrial world, primarily the United States. And the idea was that by accompanying local people who were at risk because of their activism or because of their identity, by being, usually as being a white person, this gave them some protection against the death squads that were rampant in their countries, often trained and financed. By the U.S., by the Imperium. So, spending nine or ten months in Guatemala, then moving on to El Salvador with the 
Salvadoran team there six months. I uh, kind of got an idea of the geopolitics of the region, the U.S. roles in it, and this made me want to look upstream to where more of the source of all this crime and, and violence and the source in many cases was the graduates of the School of the Americas in the insurgency training. And I was quite caught up in uh, Father Roy Bourgeois, who was this charismatic uh, Marian Ole, former Marian Ole missionary. I liked the aspect of you know, direct action, confronting the beast in its lair, which was you know, fortifying. Is that school um, still operating? Yes and no. It, uh, thanks to the work of SOA Watch, School of America's Watch, which exposed these manuals that were used at the school. We called them torture manuals. We exposed those, gave them a, we were able to give them a lot of publicity, and it led to the school actually closing back in, oh, gee, when was that? I'm not sure now. The 90s, 96 maybe. But it reopened several weeks later under another name. The name was the Western Hemisphere Institute for Security Cooperation. I think deliberately designed to be hard to remember. You know, it just kept on going, uh, doing the dirty work it had been doing. And it's, it's still, it's still there. And currently, one of its facets is to train ICE, that's immigration, in the U.S., you know, Border Patrol people who are, to my mind, like brown shirts, thugs, who are detaining and deporting, in some cases, brutalizing people from the South, Latin America, who are trying to reach the U.S. to escape the violence in their home countries. Some of that violence being inspired by U.S. foreign policy and thuggishness. Just on a little different tack, can I refer you to an article you wrote many years ago? It was titled, Activist Heritage Makes Syracuse the Place to Be. A precious asset. Couldn't you remember writing that article? Only vaguely. Only <laughs> vaguely. Can you talk about the legacy of Syracuse? Well, I can, a little. Because that's where you live. Yeah, I, I was born and raised and went to high school here in Syracuse. My parents were born here in Syracuse. I did a couple of years of college at Syracuse University, and I've been away a great deal since then, except for the last 25 years. But Syracuse, um, somewhat complacently, likes to feature its its legacy in terms of like the abolition movement during and prior to the U.S. Civil War. It was, it was part of what was called the Underground Railroad, whereby slaves fleeing slavery, hoping to get to Canada, kind of passed through Syracuse, and, and, and local people here helped them on their way. There was one facet. There was also during the 19th century and early 20th century the facet of suffragist movement. You know, women working, and some men working to get uh, women the vote, which, you know, women didn't have the vote in the United States until, you know, the early 20th century. I'll take you back to 2001, the invasion of Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. What were your feelings at that time? Very much opposed to such militarism, such invasion, such on the part of the U.S. At that time, I was very engaged in the School of the Americas issue. And one of my fellow activists in the School of the Americas issue was going over to Iraq, periodically leading delegations with an organization called Voices in the Wilderness, which came out of Chicago, USA. And he'd come back and join our ranks with School of the Americas. 
the Americas, and of course he'd talk about Iraq and encourage me to get involved over there. When my mother died after a long illness on Christmas Day 2002, I was kind of now free to join the, the peace team there, the Iraq peace team, which was under the auspices of Voices in the Wilderness. So I, I, I flew to Amman, Jordan in early February 2003, joined the peace team in Baghdad, and stayed in Baghdad uh, with travel outlying areas uh, throughout Iraq during shock and awe, which was in March of 2003. So before shock and awe, I was able to witness kind of what it was like under Saddam Hussein's reign, and then also during the shock and awe, which was this, this terror. It's the essence of terror. It's the try to intimidate and, you know, killing thousands of people through bombardment. So I had a ringside seat on that for the, for the several weeks that shock and awe persisted. And then in early April 2003, after the Marines came in and occupied Baghdad in Iraq, my, I don't know whether it was my visa expired, but anyway, I went back to the States. And then a few months later in August, I uh, returned with Voices in the Wilderness to Baghdad and was there from August through November. So I was able to kind of witness the consequences of the, the occupation by the U.S. military and its allies. And what were those consequences? Well, life was a lot rougher now. <laughs> People were nostalgic for the era, era of uh, Saddam Hussein. So much had been devastated by the bombardment. Most government buildings had been demolished by the bombardment, except for the oil ministry, which, of course, the U.S. wanted to keep intact. It was just a real severe deprivation for the Iraqis. It was the very callous U.S. occupation. It was a lot of, lot of crime abductions, uh, internecine killings. What were you and your friends able to do? We were a presence. The idea, part, part of the idea of our presence was to some sort of be a visible show of solidarity with the Iraqi people. We did what we could to sort of report on conditions. I started writing op-eds and just, you know, some descriptive amateur journalism which I sent back to the States, you know, the connections I had back in the States, back, you know, back in Syracuse, but more broadly, too. So we saw ourselves as witnesses. We saw ourselves as accompanying the Iraqi people, which sounds a little presumptuous, preposterous maybe, but we felt that maybe if there was an influx of um, non-Iraqis to be in witnesses, that maybe the U.S. military would have to sort of mind their views a little. We also just wanted to raise our raise our own consciousness about what it was like under occupation and under you know bombardment. And it certainly had a strong impact on me over the years. Those images of you know the being close to you know people who were dying. Well, one of the things we did, and this was uh, kind of part of our protracted disobedience, was to bring medical supplies in. Very modest, because under the sanctions since the 90s, Iraq had very severe shortages in medical material. So we brought our 
own end to do what we could there. Did you lose friends? Actually, we were housed in this little family hotel on the Tiber, on the Tigers, rather, about 50 or 80 yards from the hotel across the roadway was the Palestinian Hotel, which housed during the occupation and, and during the uh, shock and awe of all the international media. They had to be collected there, stayed there by order of Saddam, I guess. So they were across the street. Now, on the day, I think it was April 8th, maybe, that the Marines came into Baghdad before coming in, they bombarded, heavy bombardment, more heavy bombardment of the Hotel Palestine, killing some journalists. Now, I didn't know these particular people, but members of our team did know them. And also the Al Jazeera building across the Tigris was shelled, killing an Al Jazeera journalist. It was clear that the invading force did not want a journalistic witness there. That led to quite an exodus departure of much of the um, international media who scrambled to find taxis to take them across the desert to Jordan. And it's about a 12-hour drive through the desert. So most of the international media left, so we felt it'd be more important that those of us that could to stay as witnesses. Do you remember Australians being there? at that time also as acting as shields? Yes. There was a um, Australian Neville. Neville. He was a, had been a member of your parliament. He was also a clergyman. He was part of our team. Came from the north of Australia. So we, we traveled around uh, Iraq together, he and I. Elderly man, I think probably quite well known in Australia at the time. So he was there. There were other international people, Brits, Koreans, South Koreans. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. And I'm speaking with Ed Kinane, a founder of the Upstate Drone Action Coalition based in New York. It must have been difficult to leave when you did go in November. Our team, there were a handful of us, our visas had run out. I guess we felt we didn't have too much choice in staying. Was it difficult? Maybe I'm just too literal-minded to trying to respond to your, your question. It's a good question. Leaving behind friends and knowing that life was very, very tough for those who had survived? Well, there's that. But to be honest, in my travels, I'd spent quite a bit of time in Africa, which I forgot to mention. I had a lot of exposure to some pretty dire circumstances of people. So it was kind of a continuity of that. And certainly in Latin America, the circumstances were very dire. And, and, and the dangers the local people were enduring were pretty dire also. It was difficult, but it was time to go. Yeah, alas, yeah. You know, being in Iraq at that time was a pretty important part of my life. So it was like letting go of that and letting go of the kind of close relations I had with uh, teammates. But it, it, it issued into a, a new sort of phase of my life where I'd sort of begun, like, writing more, you know, op-eds, letters to the editor, that sort of thing, and also going on speaking tours when I got back to the States. I mean, I had a lot of credibility as a speaker, having been in Iraq at that time. So 
that became an important part of the work, too. Is you come back home and you share what you've experienced, what you've seen. So I, so I did that somewhat. Was the media interested in what you had to say? I was a part of a couple of bus tours through Voices in the Wilderness. And, of course, each town you'd go to, you'd, you'd get some press. Actually, I got more media from our work with School of the Americas. Our local media was very supportive, our daily newspapers. This was School of the Americas work. And when I would go to prison, you know, there would be editorials. Like one was going to prison for a good cause. And it was actually about a dozen editorials in our local paper. It was like when they didn't know what else to write about, they sometimes wrote about the School of the Americas and about you know, these activists who were going to prison. There was periodic uh, media coverage of my talks and that of, you know, others from the, the, the Iraq peace team. I'm just wondering what the people that you spoke to in America, how much they knew of what was going on in Iraq and how surprised and horrified they were when you related the stories of what was actually happening in Iraq. I think maybe U.S. audiences are pretty inward to the violence. Well, it's the violent society, but the, the violent um, media, you know, and also, you know, the violent U.S. foreign policy. Violence is so normalized here. Well, you're back in America at the end of 2003. Then a new chapter of activism opens up for you, and that's drones. Yes. How did that come about? Uh, well, our daily paper had these um, this series of full-page articles about the drones that were coming to Hancock Air Base, which is on the edge of Syracuse, New York. It was the home of the 174th attack wing of the New York National Guard. That term, attack wing, is so significant because I think it's a very threatening, terrorizing term, and I think the drone warfare is... is Terrorism, pure and simple, and it's acknowledged in a title like the Attack Wing. That wasn't its original name. Attack Wing came along, that terminology, I don't know, maybe around 2008, I'm not sure. Our local newspaper had this series of full-page articles kind of um, touting the idea that, wow, the drones are coming to Syracuse, isn't that great? And that was pretty appalling to me. So... A bunch of us got together from around upstate New York, from different cities in upstate New York, to do protest against these um, drones. I, I'm geared toward direct action, you know, civil disobedience, although we, we call it civil resistance rather than civil disobedience because we weren't being disobedient. We were um, actually trying to enforce the law, you know, like international law, the United Nations Charter, you know, our own Constitution, which is being so blatantly and violently violated. So we say civil resistance, not civil disobedience. How did you find out what these drones were doing or what they planned to do with them? What was known at the time? Of course, most of it was clandestine. However, international sources would report on, on you know, various massacres and assassinations perpetrated by the 
reefer drone in particular. And Hancock Air Base on the edge of Syracuse was a reefer drone hub. It trained pilots and it trained maintenance crews for the reefer drone. So, you know, there's international groups that, uh, human rights groups that, uh, we're trying to report on the casualties from these drone attacks in, in the various countries where they uh, prevailed. And then, you know, there's been, over the years, a number of books written about um, the drone. And I'm an avid reader, so I gobbled up some of these. And then here in the U.S., you know, there's uh, an alternative progressive media that does what it can to educate activists and, and the public about the role of of weaponized drones. And then, you know, there's just, here in Syracuse, there were a number of people very interested. And also nearby Ithaca, New York, which is about an hour south of Syracuse. It's a sort of activist hub. So together with some other Syracuse activists and uh, folks from Ithaca and, and other cities around the state, but also around the northeast of the United States, when we would have an action at the base, which typically involved blocking the entrance uh, often with uh, colorful props and colorful actions. We had, you know, folks turning out, coming from afar to join us for our, our civil resistance. And these actions led to arrests, then often led to jailings, trials, and then jailings. We tried to make the most of the trials doing what we call trial witness, which was also something that was very prominent in the School of the Americas Watch uh, activity over the years. So in a sense, our campaign here against the Hancock Reaper drone in some ways was modeled on that of the School of the Americas watch campaign. You know, by confronting the military right there at the gate of the base, you know, trespassing onto the base, being scrupulously nonviolent, kind of almost inviting arrest and, and, and persecution and, you know, trials and incarceration. Unfortunately, we didn't have that uh, charismatic leader in, in uh, Roy Bourgeois. I uh, quite a bit more prosaic than Roy. Can you talk about what it's like in in the trial when you try and give your points of view across? Are you allowed to speak? Yes. Actually, our first trial was in a way the biggest uh, and most publicized. Many of us went pro se meaning that we were defending ourselves and not being represented by attorneys because we wanted to speak for ourselves and say our piece. Most of us would um, either testify on our own behalf or make opening statements on our own behalf or closing statements on our behalf. I think court statements are really my favorite genre. We had 38 uh, co-defendants on that first trial in this small town court presided over by two town judges who were not very uh, sympathetic to our cause at all. I think they saw their missions trying to deter us from further further actions at the base. For a while there, they would give us the maximum penalty, which um, for violation, we had various charges over the years, Kind of the core charges were violations of trespass and disturbing the peace, which are kind of lesser charges. And the maximum penalty would be 15 days in the local penitentiary and 
good behavior. And some of us just wouldn't pay the fine. And instead, we sent the money to uh, a group in Afghanistan, a youth group in Afghanistan. And the numbers kind of went down over the last 10 years in terms of arrests and trials. So 38 was our top. I think we had 21 or 22 another time, 17 another time. And then, you know, three or four or five or eight or nine, you know, and subsequent trials. Oh, I've kind of lost track of the arrests. Um, maybe a couple of hundred people have been arrested in this campaign, and there's been, oh, maybe a score of trials over the years. And actually, sometimes we've even had charges dismissed. In more recent years, the judges have been less trigger-happy about sentencing us to jail, because I think eventually they seem to be coming around to thinking maybe there's some merit to our cause. One judge told me privately that he just wasn't going to send us to jail anymore. Can we talk for a few minutes about the consequences of these drone attacks? The, the source I have been using over the years, and I, you know, I send to journalists and I send to um, politicians, is called Living Under Drones. It's about 160 pages uh, report by Stanford University Law School and New York University Law School. It's a joint report of a project where their team went to Afghanistan, which has been very heavily hit by U.S. drones, and interviewed uh, survivors and relatives of victims. And I think it's just a. I think it came out in about. 2012, September 2012, but I think it gives a really vivid portrait of what what it's like to live under drone terrorism. Uh, And it's very well documented, very well written. That was an important tool for me to use in in reaching out, emphasizing what it's like. Can you give a couple of examples? The research was in Pakistan. There was one incident of this family, rural family, the grandmother was uh, picking okra. Her grandchildren were in the near vicinity. She was um, incinerated by a U.S. drone, and I guess the shrapnel from that attack hit some of the kids, too, but they survived. That family actually were able to come to the United States and testify before Congress. Uh, so it got some mileage in terms of you know publicity in the U.S. There are any number of examples of drone massacres. Uh, I, I don't remember the particulars of living under drones, but just recently in Yemen, uh, it was 31 people were massacred by U.S. drones, including a number of kids. There's also maybe the better known example of General Qasem Soleimani, who was a Iranian general who was flying to Baghdad on a commercial flight, got off the flight at the Baghdad airport with his entourage, was hit by uh, MQ-9 Reaper drone. So his entourage of 10, you know, were obliterated, incinerated. This happened January 2nd, maybe. In your work, have you been able to speak with any former Air Force pilots who sit in small caravans or small rooms and direct these drones or help to direct the drones? I have heard some whistleblowers, yes, you know, publicly speak about piloting or navigating drones. I have not heard any from.
Hancock Air Base. It's a very classified operation, and although twice a month we are out in front of the base demonstrating, you know, when the traffic comes off their shift, uh, there's no verbal exchange between the, the traffic driving by and ourselves. So, no, I, I you know, I certainly read a lot uh, for stand accounts and interviews and that kind of thing and, and watched, uh, you know, whistleblowers on YouTube and that kind of thing. But, no, I haven't had a personal relationship with drone pilots. Just looking back on all those years of activism, have you been back to either Iraq or Latin America in recent years? Well, there was a period there which I, I didn't talk about. I've been to Haiti a number of times doing you know, human rights work there. That was back in the 90s. I haven't been back to Iraq except for those two trips in 2003. I did spend a month in Afghanistan with Voices in the Wilderness in was around 2008. And I, I spent some time in Iran, you know, part of a fellowship of reconciliation citizens delegation talk about haiti it would be hard to imagine a more miserable place in terms of conditions for the people except that i'd spent two or three years in africa and it felt like haiti was just kind of a, a segment of africa except under more oppression than in some parts of africa there's a kind of a creole saying something to affect that Haitians don't walk, they dance, Haitians don't smile, they laugh, which certainly captures a certain aspect of the, the vivaciousness of, of Haitian people. So that's on the positive side. But we were out in the countryside, and well, there's a lot of terror that the Tantan Makuts, which was a, um, a death squad under Abada, I mean, really had the countryside in particular just under a blanket of terror. So it was a pretty tense time being there. In fact, when, when my partner Ann and I, I, I should mention that a lot of what I've done has been in partnership with my current partner for 35 years. When we left Syracuse, the headline that day was Haiti Collapses on the first page of our paper. So the UN had left at that time, and the NGOs had, you know, pretty much fled. Those of us that went in with Peace Brigades International you know, it peels attention, cut it with a knife when we when we arrived there for the duration of our stay. I was there, Ann and I, my partner, were there, I'm guessing it was about 11 weeks, extremely tense time. And from accounts I've read, nothing has changed much since then. I haven't been there in several years. Certainly there was an earthquake several years ago that 150,000 people died, mostly in the capital, port au -Prince. I'm sure it's extremely poor still. Kind of lost touch with Haiti. Just before you called, Dan, I was reading a collection of uh, speeches by Dr. Paul Farmer, who is well known for his work among the Haitian poor. Just kind of bringing back some memories. From what you've been talking about, Ed, many, many years of working for justice and peace, where do you see the world now? Oh, in, in very dire circumstances. Climate catastrophe is uh, mounting very grim prospects. I worry about uh, my partner's grandchildren and great-grandchildren, actually. I mean, what, I, you know, I can't conceive of what the world is going to be like in the coming decades. Much of the, the Western world and our style of life and our 
pathological consumption that's uh, a major cause of the climate disaster that's impending. You don't believe the people are waking up to what is happening or they're burying their heads well, in the I sand? Think like in, the, in the last couple of years, I, I think some people are waking up to it. Some of us have become aware of the, of the fires in California and in the Arctic, of course, in your corner of uh, Australia. I mean, that's a real wake-up call. The earth is on fire. What's that going to come to? It's horrifying. You've got to keep fighting. Yeah, I think so. Why not? I mean, uh, what's, what's better to do, really? It seems like the alternatives are, are kind of pointless and shallow. And so it makes sense to, to struggle, to try to reduce the uh, suffering that's only going to increase exponentially on this planet for the foreseeable. Now, I've been very entranced by Greta Thunberg and her speaking out. Uh, fortunately, here I, I've been able to see coverage of her on our, our Democracy Now! TV show, Daily News show, that hopefully reaches Australia, Amy Goodman. So I, I found Greta extremely um, inspiring. And there will be more like her? Hopefully, yeah. Uh, you know, there have been the youth in Florida that spoke up after the school shootings. And when I've heard young people like high school age people who are activists, I mean, they're just so articulate and earnest and uh, got their finger on the pulse of things. Hopefully many more will come along. Thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. And that was Ed Kinane, long-time lifeline activist for peace and justice in the United States. And that's about all for me for today. I will be back next week at 4 o'clock. Done by law coming up in a couple of minutes' time, but let's go out with the late and great Chris Wilson with I Can't Stand the Rain. Bye for now.